This is the Doctor Who podcast. You are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we'll be completing our hat trick of Sylvester McCoy commentaries with the third and final part of Dragonfire. Welcome to the third and final part of our special edition Dragonfire Commentaries with me, Leeson Fisher, and... Me, Ian. Uh, now, have we drawn the short straw here with episode three? Um, we, we, we've met, managed to miss the infamous cliffhanger scene, which is what everyone talks about in this one. Mm. But I think there's, there's certainly some interesting things in this episode that I'm looking forward to uh, talking about. Now, well, one point I'd like to, I'd like to raise here is, is the, the occasion upon which we are, we are delving into these and doing the commentaries is to celebrate the 150th episode of the Doctor Who podcast, uh, because this, uh, according to the Radio Times, is the 150th serial of Doctor Who. But it, but it wasn't, was it? I, I don't want to, to spoil the party, but it's only the 150th if you count the Trial of a Time Lord season as four separate episodes. Uh, this is not an area that, like production codes, this whole side of cataloguing stuff in this way is an area I tend to stay away from, which, pro- which probably means I lose my Doctor Who fan card, but... Uh, I just watch it. I don't know. I, I seem to remember stumbling across this fact a long while ago. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was building the Radio Times as being the 150th. But you know, uh, nerds as we are, and, and let's be out and proud. Uh, it's technically it's not. And of course, um, the other guys may have already mentioned this fact. Um, so we should say also that we haven't heard what the other guys have recorded. So there may be some repetition uh, of, of things that we have to say. In fact. Ironically, apologising for the fact there may be some repetition may may also be a, a repetition. So apologies for that. We we may also contradict them, in which case we're right. Mm, absolutely, because we have the final say. So uh, without further ado, if you're playing at home, we'll do a, a count in of three, and then we press play on our DVD players. Are you ready, Ian? I certainly am. Three. Two, one, play. Ah, now, the McCoy titles. Are you a fan? I I never liked these. E- even back in the day, I always thought they looked a bit cheap and cartoony. And I've always been much more of a fan of the Starfield titles from the uh, Fifth and Sixth Doctor. Mm. Well, I, it, it's definitely a leap forward in, uh, in the, sort of the graphics. Uh, it's, it's the theme that, that that doesn't tickle me so much. Oh, and the wink. The, the music doesn't bother me, but it's that early CGI thing that... I say, even back then, when it was brand new and cutting-edge technology, I always thought it looked a bit more childish than the previous credits had. Hmm. Ah, the dragon's head, uh, sort of wobbly and has opened. Oh, dear. That... They were saying in the, one of the extras that uh, this is Doctor Who does Alien, and I think there's only a couple of points where that's really true. And one is the look of the, the monster, 
but I think they all said in the extras it works well in close up, but from a long shot, it's not. Oh, see, I quite liked it in long shot. I, I thought it was uh, if you're going to go for a man in a costume, uh, it was quite quite a successful one, really. Legs may have been a bit spindly. Mm, it's one of those ones where if, if people walk in and watch, look at you watching it, they roll their eyes. Mm. I mean, as far as design of the show goes, what, what do we think about the sets and the general general look and feel? I think for the most part it's pretty good. I mean, this is a lovely set here. The The corridors are reasonably effective. It's got a little bit of the traditional Doctor Who, how many different angles can we shoot this one corridor from? But, you know, that that's part of the joy of the show. So I think the production design is actually quite good. Yeah, I remember watching this on broadcast when I was a kiddlywink uh, and quite liking that because it's got a cheesy naffness to it, the uh, the cantina sort of sequence, um, the, the cafe. I quite like that sort of cobbled together half 50s, half sort of tasteless 80s plants and things in the background. I did quite enjoy that. And it makes a nice change from a country manager in an English village. Mm, yes, yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, the sort of B-Jams freezer uh, area that they, that they land in <laughs> was always quite interesting. I think someone took Ice World a bit too far with that. <laughs> and of course, uh, Sylvester McCoy is is not acting the fool as much as he had previously in uh, in this season, and this is almost a tipping point into to the the darker Doctor. That's exactly what I was going to say. This is the transition point where you can see he's starting to bring through the character he wants to do. Because I've I've always been a fan of Sylvester McCoy. I think he actually did a great job as the Doctor. He was hobbled by poor stories and poor direction. I think. Uh, yes. Yeah. There, there was a, a bit of. There's a general. I don't know, sort of confusion as to as to where they were going to take take this. Certainly in this series, in his first series, and it was almost a feeling of sort of, of trying too many things. But it begins to distill with this story, I think. And I think part of the problem is that Sylvester had, of course, that reputation for doing pratfalls and silly goof stuff as part of his general act. So I think people played into that, and of course, it was probably easy for him to play up to it as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, like you say, he, he was known for you know, hammering nails up his nose and being generally being the jester. And I think Sylvester McCoy is probably maybe maybe the, the only example of uh, a doctor where it, you know, he didn't play to his natural strengths, which which seemed to be uh, pratfalling and, and being silly. And he tried that, and it didn't work. And it was only when he completely flipped it and, and did something he'd never done before, which was to take it darker. Uh, where it's, you know, it seemed to work. You can almost feel the brown jacket hanging off, uh, uh, you know, offset here, waiting to to leap on, because that always seems mm. to to me to be the point where they where they got the seventh Doctor. When, once he got the brown jacket. Mm. Now this is the other thing where I think you can say there's a link to alien or aliens rather, is that these two are trying to do the colonial marines from aliens. Oh, with the and... pulse rifle. Yes, except it's not nearly as convincing. No. Speaking of which, <laughs> th- these are the corridors uh, of which uh, we, mm-hmm. uh, we mentioned slightly earlier, which, uh, yes, the, possibly the big letdown of, of the sets, I think. Um, I think they're OK. I, I think there's a failing to this that they're overused, but that always happens in Doctor Who sets. I think it's, it's perhaps uh, the, the upper levels, before they get down to, the, to this level. This isn't quite so bad. Um, but, uh, yeah... Earlier on, a bit further up, they they do sort of feel like it feels like you're wandering around sort of in the background of a sports centre, which which they probably <laughs> were. Could well have been, yes. And of course, McCoy uh, doing his best to simulate the slippiness of the ice uh, when no one else is yes. bothering. <laughs> but, yes, but but does it with that kind of slightly clownish look to him? <laughs> yeah, so there's still elements. I mean, there always were uh, still elements of, of the clown in his character, which you know, in a way, is a bit like um, you know, Doctor Number Nine. You had that. So the juxtaposition between the comedy and the darkness. Yes, except Doctor Number Nine managed to do it within one episode rather than different seasons. <laughs> yeah. 
yes, there's, there's these two going forward trying to be, you know, a military squad. It's really not at all convincing. And they keep pointing their guns at each other and stuff. They're just... Yeah, it bugs me. I don't like there it. Is, yeah, there's something about you know, when you get uh, actors who, who aren't trained, when you don't have professionals off camera telling you how to behave in a, like an army strike squad, uh, then mm. it, it can look absolutely terrible. There's some moments in uh, the third Doctor's era where unit look a, a, you know, a bit like kids playing at it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Good introduction for Ace. Uh Watching this again um, for the purposes of this, watch the whole serial, uh, was was really struck by uh, what a really positive start this was for Ace, and it really did feel like something fresh. And uh, you know, we needed a good companion after um, the infinite cardboard that was Mel. Yes, yeah, so you can really see the contrast between the two of them. I mean, it, all the time Mel's on there, you keep expecting to slap her thigh and go into panto. <laughs> she does suffer from the hangover of um, uh, who was it that she played? Is it Annie? She was in the stage, stage production of Annie. I'll squeam and squeam until I'm sick. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> but, but she does tend to slightly overact things, and it is that sort of sl- slightly larger-than-life panto look. It's, which... it's the West End coming out, isn't it? it yeah, yeah. this doesn't work. Project, dear, project. <laughs> I like, Yeah, the, the thread of this little girl sort of lost throughout the three episodes is quite nice. Uh, she seems to... She's right from the first scene. She's there when the TARDIS arrives, and uh, she is constantly flitting around underneath tables as we see her now with her teddy. This is one of the bits where I start to find this story a bit strange because you've just got these civilians being slaughtered left, right, and centre. Mm. And it's actually, if you stop and think about it, incredibly dark. It doesn't. Oh, here we are. Here they do their, their space marine routine. Oh, there we go. Look. <laughs> Are they holding those guns the right way around? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's not very convincing, is it? No, but yeah, the dragon. I, I, I stand by the fact that I quite like the dragon. Because there's only so much you can do with a man in a suit. Uh, and I think that's probably as much as you can do. I, I think it's because it's unbalanced. The, the head is so large compared to a normal-sized body. It, it, it looks very top-heavy. Mm. It needs a bit more embellishment around the body. Now Kane, uh, as the as the as the villain, is marvelously cast, marvelously played. And I think I can't, I can't think of any other um, you know quintessential Doctor Who villains uh, that that were as effective in the McCoy era. We tend to drift away from the megalomaniac. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and say that again. Uh, from the um, megalomaniac uh, Doctor Who villain, you know the, the Mister Chase sort of style yeah. thing, and and yeah, he plays it very well. He does. Unfortunately, his character is um, undermined by some of the things they get him to do. Um, the, the fact that he spent 3,000 years on this planet and has achieved, well, nothing, uh, and then the Doctor comes along and finds the dragon fire in about, you know, three and a half minutes, you, you think he's not very effective, is he? Um, and then we'll come back to another one later on where he doesn't actually behave. Yeah, that scene there is a lift straight out of Aliens as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, with, yes. With Newt. Yes. Maybe her wandering around was was purely just a set up for that little um, nod to Alien. Yeah, you see, the dragon looks quite menacing there. Yeah, in, in close it looks great. It's it's in when you see it from a distance that I think it it, it suffers. Well, it's as as is the truth with so many Doctor Who um, monsters. You know, it, the the trick is in the in the direction, isn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. So, uh, like uh, Steven Spielberg's infamous rubber shark in Jaws. Mm. Which benefited from the fact that it, it hardly ever worked. <laughs> so it didn't get much screen time. And you, exactly, which made it more menacing. Absolutely, yeah. They, they certainly could have learnt a lot from that. Well, even the first Alien film. Mm. And now he's turned into a childminder. <laughs> this is... Oh, the famous cliff. The cliff, yes. Which... which once you get that that clunky, nonsensical cliffhanger uh, at the uh, end of part one, you do see them having to go back up and down this. So it, you sort you sort of retcon it in your mind, even if you don't know why it looks so clunky at the end of episode one. You can you can sort of say, oh, this is this is a route that they have to take. Mm. I wonder if the name of the ship Nosferatu is another nod towards Alien with the Nostromo and the Narcissus, which were the ships in the first film. Uh, of course, yes. And of course, there's a there's a nod to the Wizard of Oz as well, with um, uh, Ace's sort of story. She's been whipped up in the in the whirlwind, and brought to this strange place. And her name is actually Dorothy. As a nod to that, isn't it? Mm, yes. Good model work. It's yeah. As is a uh, is a sort of a good feature of the the Seventh Doctor era, right from uh, his time in the Rani. Some very nice model work. But again, this is one of these areas where I think. So they've got a ship full of civilians who have nothing really to do with the story. And what are we going to do? We're going to blow them all up. Hmm. I, it, I don't quite see why that was done. It seems very, very dark when you stop and think about it, hmm. that all those civilians were just killed for him to be a cackling villain, really. Yes, for the purposes of, of peril. But the, the funny thing is it doesn't come across as being that dark because it's so bright and shiny the way that it's been shot. Hmm. So anyway, you stop and think about it. And you do get the feeling that Glitz only cares because he's lost his ship. He doesn't care about the civilians. Yes. Do you think Glitz is a... Is a uh, do you think the story is better for having Glitz in it? Or, or you know, could, it, could it have been anyone? Because I don't think it was originally written to be Glitz, was it? It wasn't, no. I have a real problem with Glitz's character because he's presented as this sort of lovable, rogue, Han Solo-y type character. And, you know... But he starts off the show by selling his entire crew into slavery. Yes. That, that's not lovable rogue... That's selling your that's selling human beings into slavery. That's just straight out evil and wrong. He's not normally the sort of character that the Doctor would have anything to do with, without sort of you know drawing attention to the fact that uh, well, it's it, not it's, acceptable. It's the kind of character that the Doctor would usually be battling against mm. and stopping. Um, yeah, and I also don't think I don't think he works so well when he's not written by uh, Robert Holmes. It also doesn't work so well without the the comedy sidekick, Dibber. Uh, to be honest, it's been so long since I saw the previous story, I can't really remember how he played in that one. So um, I've only really got this one to... Ah, uh, yeah, he was M- Mysterious Planet, which was um, yeah. born on the Trial of the Time Lord. Yeah, he was a, the last of the classic homies in Double Axe, wasn't he? He's sort of an intergalactic Arthur Daly. <laughs> uh, if you're a transatlantic listener, uh, just uh, Google Minder. Oh, they're still going for it. Yeah. And you know, surprisingly effective considering their ineptitude. If the guns were that effective, why didn't they shoot it like twenty minutes ago? <laughs> <laughs> they just not for want of, cho- of opportunity. <laughs> and this again seemed to be an awfully out with a whimper end to the mon- whether you like the monster or not. It's been a key part of the story. Mm. And then suddenly, 
the sort of snap of the fingers, it's dead and its head chopped off. And of course, by this time, we know that you know, it's not it's not a horrible monster. It's um, mm. and then to see it, I mean, to see it sort of um, lobotomized. Yes, but they've just made it sympathetic by having it, you know, be all nice with a little girl, and now we'll decapitate it. I remember this moment, uh, the, the the head opening. You know, you have these moments uh, from Doctor Who, from when you watched it as a child that you don't necessarily remember in the in the, in the front of your mind, but when you revisit mm-hmm. them, certain things, and it's usually sort of um, sounds or colours with Doctor Who. They just they take you straight back to where you first. Uh, it's as if those moments are stamped on your brain, and I think yes. that the the, um, the dragon's head opening was definitely one of those moments for me. Uh, we're now getting into to the to the final moments of of Mel's swan song as as companion. But of course, they, they wrote the story with two endings: one where she left and one where she stayed, and they didn't decide until the end. Because I, I think the the girl from Delta and the Bannerman was also up for the role. Of a companion. That's right, yeah. And they basically used the two episodes as an extended audition for both her and for Ace. Mm. Another good model shot. I was very impressed with this. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And again, you're seeing real models there rather than the CGI, and I do like a nice bit of model work. Mm, yeah, well, it's it's quintessentially Doctor Who. Yeah, very effective. I mean, actually, I, I, the whole story. I mean, I, Rewatching it for the purposes of this, you know, I enjoyed it. It's another one of these Doctor Who stories which, which I think benefits from its dreadful reputation, because you go in with with your expectations lowered so far that you know it can only it can only impress. I think it comes down to whether you can see past the failings, because there are failings, hmm. like the, pretty much the whole of the McCoy era. There are manifest failings going on, but there's still lots of gems in amongst that, and it's whether you can put them to one side and appreciate it for what it. It does have to offer, which I think is is a character trait of Doctor Who fans. We 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 are able to look past wobbly sets and perhaps use our imagination more, or are we overinflating ourselves by saying that? <laughs> I think certainly in this day and age, if you want to still be a classic Who fan, if you can't do that, you're going to spend your life very disappointed. <laughs> well, it's it's partly unlucky that you're in a child, isn't it? You don't see mm. rickety sets, you don't see clunky dialogue when you're a child. You. you you have a filter that you can just uh, uh, sort of experience things through uh, and take them readily for what they what they are trying to be. Mm. Oh, we're going to deep freeze the teddy bear now. Which is a, a good trick if you get uh, if you get chewing gum on your on your teddy, mm-hmm. or uh, for getting rid of fleas and, and nasty bacteria. So DWP fact there. <laughs> Do you think they've reused these helmets from some kind of uh, French uh, uh, costume drama? Maybe, or possibly a lower low or something. Yes, they look like a sort of gendarme helmet, don't they? Yes. So the, the, the Doctor therefore lampshades some of the weakness of the plot here, that for 3,000 years and it, he hasn't been able to achieve anything. He probably could have evolved space travel in that time. <laughs> yeah. So in a, in a swipe, the most effective, uh, sort of terrifying Doctor Who villain from the McCoy era uh, seems a bit feckless. Yeah, and it's a shame because the, the performance is very good. He's very strong. Mm. He's got good menace. It's just when you stop and think about, he's got a lot of the sort of classic uh, useless villain tropes going on about him. Of course, uh, I was reading um, David Jason was originally... Uh, 
whether he was approached, uh, I couldn't see, but he was certainly, um, bare, they bore him in mind for the, for the role of Kane. And it got me thinking that David Jason uh, you know, would have been a, he's probably the, the best Doctor Who villain we never had. He would have been a, an excellent sort of a guest character. A bit shorter though. Yes, yes, it's hard to be menacing when you're short. Mm. I know, I've tried. When we get watching this back, I realised how much of the Ace story was actually set out in this in this episode. Because I'm more familiar with Curtis Fenric, where you get the conclusion uh, and, mm. and all the threads tied together. But uh, going back to watch this, you realise no, the the ideas were all there. Well, apparently not, because again, one of the extras for Dragonfire, they say that the the whole you know, cooked up a time storm and got whisked here doesn't make any sense and they did it in a rush and it is a concept they came up with very very rapidly and they did curse of fenric deliberately to retcon it and make it a bit more believable than it was in the first uh, writing ah i see well i see i found it quite quite satisfying when i finally because um mm. i came to sylvester mccoy very late when i watched it when i was a kid but when i came back as an older as an older person an older child um mccoy took a while for me to get And this is where Kane does the second act of being just a useless foe. So he looks at the navigational equipment, and surely he must, being a 3,000-year-old supervillain, he must realise what it means. <laughs> oh. Didn't Sylvester give that same speech to a Dalek in Remembrance? Look at the son of Bramon. No, the, the, um, a, a thousand years and a million miles away from your home or, or something along those lines. Ah, uh, yes, yes. When he, when he talked the Dalek into killing itself, which is exactly what he's doing here. Mm. This is, uh, well, the, the manipul- manipulating Seventh Doctor, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost, now I listen to it, it's a very, very similar speech to the one he uses to get the Dalek to self-destruct. And yeah, wh- why does Kane do this? Yes, to go and... I mean, it's a deliberate act of, of suicide, isn't it? I know. You, you, you've, you've stuck it out for 3,000 years in Iceland, you know, knocking around the freezers, and now you just go and vaporise yourself. Talked out of it by a clown. Bit, yeah, you're a bit ticked off at some changes to the astrogation charts. <laughs> I mean, incredibly um, disturbing sequence there. Even, even as an adult, that's a bit... Uh, with the melting face. Yeah, well, they, they apparently had complaints about it. Oh, I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. And here, why is it time? Mel, I, I to this day never understand why Mel decides now to go. Yeah, I mean, does she want to shack up with um, with Glitz? Mm. Of course, this whole sequence, I mean, which is wonderful, the highlight of the episode, wasn't originally in the episode, was it? This this was the audition. It was his audition tape, yes, and he wanted to use it. And good on him for pushing for it, because it's mm. it's beautiful Seventh Doctor. He's good, but... I, t- I mean, unfortunately, to be all rather about it, I can't see her motivation here. No, well, no. He, there's nothing that's prompted to her to leave, and they don't give you any reason. I mean, was this meant to be a four-parter? Not that I'm aware see, of. See, it has the feel of, of, of something that's been chopped down quite a lot. You know, that... Well, certainly with the cliffhanger, and yeah, you know, there should be more ex- exposition. Uh, certainly about Kane's 
um, you know, other half that, that died. He has the ice sculpture. It feels like there's huge chunks missing that would have made it make a bit more sense. I don't think it can be because, of course, this is when they came back after the hiatus and they were having short seasons. Mm. And so they had to write these condensed stories to get enough different stories into a season. See, McCoy does, does do these these light moments. Light as in... Well, he does them very well. And, of course, they wrote a version of this. I mean, you can see why there's no lead-up to Mel leaving because they wrote an, an alternate version where she doesn't. Mm. But you'd think in the dialogue they could have given her some kind of reason of, you know, like Tegan at the end of Resurrection of the Daleks. You know, you've had no hint that she's thinking of leaving, but they take all the death and destruction, show that she's distressed mm. by it. And in and just in two or three sentences, you can see she's had enough and she wants to go. And it makes sense and it works. Yeah. If they'd just done, you know, one or two sentences of something, oh, I'm so upset at all those civilians being blown up in the ship, you know. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have taken much. Well, is it, as, as, is it just like she's going, hmm, today I think I'll leave? Well, this, of course, the difference is that she's just decided she wants to stay here, uh, which isn't her home. Uh, and if she it's was an, disturbed by all the horrible things that had happened here, then she probably wouldn't want to stay, whereas Tegan was was at least on her home planet. I mean, really, the only possible just vindication you can come for it is that, well, she quite likes glitz, as you say, which mm. is actually even less uh, understandable. <laughs> yes, unless she likes, she likes a bit of rough. And indeed... You're quite surprised that Glitz would be interested either. That's the 307th time that Ace has said the word Ace. <laughs> I did feel a bit like they were... I mean, I, 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 was, I was a kid when this was on. Uh, I don't remember saying Ace and Mega quite so much. I think they did slightly misjudge the, the street cred, some of the street cred aspects of Ace. But that moment we've just seen there, that is when the true Seventh Doctor era starts, when we lose the squeamish squeam lady and the, the, the team mm. of... Uh, Sylvester and uh, Sophie go together because really they are the era and everything that's followed on in Big Finish and all that kind of stuff that, that is what defines that era yes yeah so overall opinions then is this as bad as, as everybody tells you it is um, well no it, it, very few things are as bad as their reputation from this era I think um, but it's not brilliant and I think that you're, you're well into the point in time when the, the failings are starting to outweigh the good stuff. There's some really lovely things in this story. There's, there's some nice portrayals, there's some nice lines, there's some nice ideas, but the, the, you can see the budget restrictions and the time restrictions and the lack of support within the BBC. It's really starting to tell. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, sort of the failings are starting to outweigh the good stuff, which, of course, got worse and worse throughout this whole era. Yes, yeah, there, there are mistakes in the way things are put together, which... Um, which... Yeah, break your concentration and your your ability to follow what's going on. It's like a poorly poorly written essay. And the the, the infamous cliffhanger is um, an example because it was supposed to be it was supposed to make sense, but they rushed it on the day, and because they rushed it, they were left with not enough to make uh, a proper uh, scene out of it. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I hope you enjoyed watching it with us, and and possibly even enjoyed us rambling over the top of it. So, uh, time to wrap this up, Ian. Absolutely. If you would like to debate with us how good, bad or otherwise you think this is, do send us some feedback, feedback at the com, or drop by our forums. Yeah, drop by and say hello to us on the forums. We're, we're, we, we pop up there on a fairly regular basis. So come and have a chat, tell us what you think. So, until next time, this is goodbye from me. And this is goodbye from me. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. 
If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.